Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. This episode is a little different than most. Rather than interview a scholar who has a book out or coming out, I'm interviewing a scholar who published a book a decade ago, and we're revisiting it in the light of current events. The book is The Chinese Exclusion Act, What It Can Teach Us About America, and the author is Ben Railton, professor of American studies at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts. Ben is a scholar of memory, American identity, and he so easily talks about history through literature, material culture, and geography. His most recent book, Of The I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism, explores ideas of loyalty and identity and acts of performative patriotism. Think about the singing of the anthem, the pledging of the flag, versus sports people taking a knee or activists burning a flag. But today, we're not delving into that. We're looking at the Chinese Exclusion Act. And the Chinese Exclusion Act was the first federal immigration law that banned all Chinese from coming to the United States. It banned the Chinese for 10 years. President Chester A. Arthur vetoed the act initially because it excluded the Chinese for 20 years. But in 1882, when Congress reduced the exclusionary period to 10 years, Arthur signed on. The act was conceived out of bigotry. Many Americans treated the Chinese as pariahs, more inferior than others in the so-called hierarchy of races. Labor movements also advocated for exclusion, seeing Chinese laborers who contributed immensely to the construction of the railroads as competition for domestic laborers. And the irony here is that non-Chinese laborers were often immigrants themselves. We'll look at the history and the context for the enactment. We'll also look at the longer history of immigration legislation through the Gilded Age and into the later 20th century. And that's part of the reason I feel Ben's book has importance today and why we could stand to talk more about Chinese exclusion. Immigration remains one of the foremost issues in the United States. Donald Trump, who won the 2016 election in part due to the catchphrase, build the wall, had an anti-immigrant refrain. And almost as soon as he became president, Trump declared a travel ban for Muslim-majority nations. Only this month, Joe Biden made his first visit to the Mexican border after announcing new avenues for asylum while seeking to deter migrants by expelling a record number of immigrants. 
So to help navigate the history and show us the ways the past can help inform the present, Ben is here. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm really glad to be chatting with you. Yeah, it's great. I think this is kind of a, I wouldn't say a momentous week for immigration necessarily, but immigration is, I think, never really left the headlines for, I don't know, maybe maybe ever. But uh, I wanted to come back to your book about Chinese exclusion. It's one of the most important legislative uh, acts around immigration, and your your book spells that out. But I was hoping you would just give us an introduction to what is the Chinese Exclusion Act and how, in your mind, did it change American immigration history? Absolutely. And um, just to preface, I'll say when I think about the act, and this has become even more and more true since I wrote that book, I think that it both is and isn't about immigration. And so in a second, I'll try to say a little about why I think it also isn't importantly, or at least not limited to, but I would say in some ways not even focused on. That's the second layer. But the first layer is it was incredibly significant as really the first national federal immigration law of any kind. Um, I have a lot of respect for the scholars who've been working, particularly recently on the development of state immigration laws and migration laws, which developed kind of over the 19th century. Um, I would call those often migration laws. I think they're often more about internal movement, but there's no doubt that states were thinking about things like people coming into their state and migration. But on the federal level, on the national level, this is the moment when there starts to be even the possibility, even the, the idea of federal immigration law. Um, and, and so much so that it's even a, a constitutional question whether that's actually permissible or not, because the constitution doesn't mention immigration, it doesn't grant the federal government the power to make such laws. So it becomes a real debate whether they even can make such federal laws after the Chinese Exclusion Act. So it's really the first federal law. It's a controversial one, not only specifically, but even just the idea of it, the existence of it. Um, and the other thing I would say about that that makes it so significant, besides the specifically discriminatory nature of it towards Chinese Americans that I'm sure we'll keep talking about, is that it also immediately establishes that immigration law is about defining categories of unwanted arrivals, of illegal arrivals, rather than creating something like rules or laws for arrivals who can come. There's nothing in this law about any other community, about a broad system of rules, about the idea of all arrivals having to follow some sort of process. It's purely and solely and centrally about excluding, about discriminating. And I think that's really important to recognize that immigration law at all starts with that goal and only that goal. And I have argued and would argue develops for decades after in that same way, just excluding and discriminating against other communities as well. So all those things I think are really, really important. I won't talk at length about the second layer yet because I'm sure we'll circle back to it, but I will just say, I always try to remember, and I have more and more since I wrote about it originally, that Chinese Americans were in no way a new community. Um, and I think a lot of levels of both the Chinese Exclusion Act and all of its aftermath laws were about discriminating against the existing Chinese American community, all the people who were already in the United States and had been for decades and generations by that time, at least as much as it was about immigration. So I think all those layers of immigration significance are really important, but I also think it's worth noting that the first laws, and I would argue pretty much every immigration law since, is at least as much about communities that are already in the United States as about arrivals to the US. So I think that layer is worth remembering too. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to move on to 1924 at some stage when the quota system comes in. But as you say, this is the first exclusion of any group of people from the United States. It's I don't think there and correct me if I'm wrong here. Is there any other law that's been passed 
that has been so exclusionary to one group. I mean, we could talk about quotas later on. We can talk about, you know, travel bans in, in, the, in the 21st century. But this seems to be, you know, a remarkably targeted uh, means of excluding one, one type of person. It was. Um, it did uh, influence some later policies and legislation that I think we're trying to emulate it. So in 1906, there's this thing called the Gentleman's Agreement between the U.S. and Japan, the Teddy Roosevelt administration and Japan, which largely ex excludes Japanese arrivals in a way that is kind of parallel. That's not a law exactly. It's this weird sort of policy, presidential policy. In the 1930s, there are attempts to exclude Filipino arrivals to the U.S., which is even more fraught because the Philippines are occupied by the U.S. at the time, so they're not even immigrants, really. So there are ways in which this becomes kind of like a model for this attempt to exclude, often particularly Asian communities in those ways. But no, in terms of a federal law, um, it's really singular. I agree. So and then I guess that that kind of raises the question of about why legislators enacted. I mean, I kind of know the story, but I'd love to hear you tell it. Why is it? I mean, what's the context that leads to the Exclusion Act. And this is something I've I've thought a lot more about since I wrote that book, because I've looked at different um, histories kind of around and in conversation with the history of the Exclusion Act itself, including my current book project, which is thinking about one of the main figures in it is this guy, Dennis Kearney, who's this Irish immigrant and labor leader who becomes like the face of the anti-Chinese movement in the 1870s um, in California first, but then it spreads around the country really fully. So that's one thing is that throughout the, the late 1860s, but especially the 1870s, there's this hugely developing anti-Chinese narrative, um, xenophobic, racist, discriminatory, exclusionary narrative. Um, it's connected to this idea of the yellow peril of all these so-called threats and, and perils that the Chinese Chinese American community, but they would say Chinese community poses. Um, it's connected to labor. It's connected to economics because there's this long depression in the 1870s, beginning with the Panic of 1873, which as often leads to some of these worries about you know workers from different communities. So there's this 1870s developing narrative. But the other thing I've learned a lot about since I wrote that book, a lot more about is how many attempts there were before the Exclusion Act in the late 1870s or early 1880s. So it's really a building federal debate as well. There's an attempt to pass an Exclusion Act in 1878 that Rutherford B. Hayes vetoes. It gets to the, the president's desk, but he vetoes it. Um, in 1880, Congress revises this treaty called the Burlingame Treaty between the U.S. and China in order to make it possible to exclude, because that's partly why Hayes had vetoed that first law. Um, in early 1882, there's a different Chinese Exclusion Act that uh, Chester Arthur vetoes, because it's for 20 years and he thinks that's too long. So it is like a multi-multi-step process. There's this larger developing narrative throughout the 1870s for all those different reasons, xenophobia, labor, economics, all those things. But there also is just this, this gradually building congressional attempt to create this exclusion, to create a policy like that, um, dominated by voices who are very much in conversation with people like Dennis Kearney um, in, in developing that narrative. So it's happening kind of on both those fronts for about 15 years, let's say, before the Exclusion Act itself. Fascinating that two presidents veto previous exclusion bills. And it's it's I often wonder about the lobby or the special interests that are behind those vetoes. Um, is it, I mean, how much is the labor movement pushing on one side and where is the resistance? I mean, what is, what's backing up Hayes and uh, Chester A. Arthur, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's the resistance in the Republican party to not passing this legislation? Is there any, or is it, is it just a presidential sort of moral decision? 
There's a little. Um, these are definitely you know, overwhelmingly passed laws in Congress. It's not like they're incredibly close votes I, as I've ever seen, but there is resistance, particularly among some of the radical Republicans. Um, so for example, Charles Sumner, the Senator who had been such a vocal abolitionist when the 1870 naturalization act is being debated, um, which, you know, basically extends the idea of, of naturalization to African-Americans, to all African-Americans. Sumner argues it should include Asian-Americans as well on the floor of the Senate. Um, and he's not alone in that. He's an example of that. And so he's an example of a radical Republican voice who do kind of push for that idea of equality and equal rights under the law, at least, as extending to Asian-Americans as well. Um, and I think that is an influence in there. Um, but on the other hand, for both Hayes and Arthur, they have very specific objections. Like Hayes says, well, the Burlingame Treaty is still in effect. I can't veto, I can't pass this law. So then they revised that treaty with the 1880 Angel Treaty. And then Arthur says 20 years is too long. That seems extreme. They revise it to 10 years and he signs the bill a couple months later. So there is a narrative of, of extending equality under the law from at least some radical Republicans that I think is in there. But I think it's also important to say that to some degree, they're sort of just looking for the right way to exclude. And when they come up with that in May 1882, the bill passes and is is, is signed off. on. And obviously, labor is a big part of this as well. Naturally, I, I've got to ask about uh, the labor fears. I mean, you, you've mentioned quite a bit about the, well, you haven't said it explicitly, perhaps about race, race being the, you know, the key issue, but that's, that's almost implicit and, you know, obvious, so you don't have to say it. Labor and race, how much are those intertwined or is it a purely for the labor sort of uh, the, the, the unions? I mean, do they want to exclude Chinese labor or do they also want to include exclude the Chinese? Yeah, I think it's a really slippery slope. So like Dennis Kearney's speeches, for example, when he first comes to prominence, it's as a labor leader and he's giving speeches about like the powerful elite in California and the need to overthrow them. He's really openly sort of making a very communist case, a very socialist case in the mid 1870s. But then when he starts giving the anti-Chinese speeches in 1877 that, that launch him into national prominence, it includes it includes labor questions, but it's also immediately including all those other layers of the yellow peril. They're diseased, they're criminal, they're women are prostitutes, they're threatening our morality, they're threatening our health. Um, it's a very immediate shift, even though the labor arguments would seem to really include uh, many of those Chinese American laborers, particularly like railroad workers who are really parallel to Irish American railroad workers that Kearney represented in many ways or connected to. So I think it's a slippery slope and a really prominent example of that more broadly is the Knights of Labor, you know, one of the first really powerful national labor unions and a really overtly working class focused one also lead many of the efforts to do things like destroy Chinese communities in places like Tacoma, Washington, Seattle, the uh, Rock Springs massacre in Wyoming in 1886, that starts at a Knights of Labor labor hall. The, the white supremacist kind of mob begins there and then extends to attacking Chinese American miners in Rock Springs. So I do think the labor arguments would seem to include these multiple communities. And yet people like Kearney, the Knights of Labor, really consistently slip into this broader anti-Chinese narrative. And yeah, there's a little bit of the sense of competition, but again, all workers are in competition for jobs and they're really specifically targeting Chinese Americans and not just on, on the labor level, I would say, on broader levels of prejudice and and, and exclusion. Yeah, great point. And, and Erica Lee's work looks at the transnational aspects that go beyond, you know, into Mexico and Canada, that whole West Coast was really consumed by it. I guess the other thing that um, 
people might not know about, but I'd love if you could tell them a little bit more about is how the Chinese Exclusion Act was not just about immigrants coming in and um, stealing American jobs, quote unquote, right? But it was also about changing the nature and relationship of Chinese Americans in America, that people were persecuted in the United States after the exclusion laws were passed, right? Very much so. And by design. Um, so yeah, a huge argument that I, I was already making in that Chinese exclusion book, but that I've really tried to deepen in my own thinking over the, the decade or so since is, you know, first of all, this is a very, again, well-established, long-standing, multi-generational community. The 1880 census has like 103,000 Chinese Americans, and there's probably many more than that because that census was very imprecise for big, crowded communities and so on. So it's a large community. It's a multi-generational community. It's not simply, you know, brand new arrivals in the 1880s by any means. But more than that, if you look at what the laws do, um, even the Exclusion Act itself strips the citizenship from any Chinese American who'd been able to gain it, which is not nobody like Young Wing, who I've written a lot about this prominent Chinese American um, educator and, and diplomat. He had gained his citizenship in Connecticut in the 1850s. Many others at various times had been able to in different states and circumstances. And the Exclusion Act strips that citizenship, which has nothing to do with new arrivals, quite the opposite, right? It can only affect people who've been here for at least some time. And then if you look at a particularly striking one is the Scott Act from 1885, which is one of like the aftermath of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws. That makes it illegal for any Chinese American in the U.S. to leave the country and come back, um, which, as, as we know, is a huge part of like multi-generational immigrant experience, right, is moving between an American experience, moving between places, visiting relatives and, and you know, different countries. And again, that has nothing to do with new arrivals. That's about making it very difficult for people in the community in the U.S., to live, to live the lives they hope to live and have the families and the communities they hope to have. And, and there's other pieces of those laws as well. But I just think it's really, really important to say exclusion as a goal is certainly related to immigration, defining, again, illegal communities, particularly of arrivals. But I think at least as much, and I would say this again, of every community affected by every immigration law that we can see, at least as much about responding to communities that are in the U.S. in prejudiced ways and exclusionary ways and trying to make their lives more and more difficult uh, because they're seen in these laws, in these narratives as not fully part of the U.S., as you know, also foreign to the U.S., even though they're in the country already. And so I think that idea of, of illegal communities isn't just about new arrivals. It's about defining existing communities as not fully or not legally or authentically American as well. And those are all in scare quotes, all those words that I'm using. Um, but I think that's how the laws define them, for sure. I mean, I think that's the big takeaway from the act, from your book, from the, all of the scholarship, is that this is effectively defining national identity. Um, and we, we, we've overlooked this, right? I mean, that's your, big, your, that's your big statement at the outset of the book. We don't talk about the Chinese exclusion. Act. I mean, and yet it's central, as you're saying, to how we consider our national identity. So why do we forget it? Why do we not talk about it? Why is it not discussed as, as much as say, I don't know, any other immigration law that you can think of? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I don't think there's, there's one silver bullet answer. I would say one thing is perhaps a coincidental thing, certainly kind of like a hypocritical or at least ironic thing, but definitely a factor is exact same decade, the Statue of Liberty premieres in New York Harbor, right? 1886. And so I think it's it's at that moment that we also have this symbol of, hey, we're this welcoming country. We are, you know, send us, you're tired, you're hungry, you're poor. And so I think just in terms of like cognitive dissonance, it would be perhaps harder to remember that that's like four years after 
this first overtly exclusionary discriminatory federal immigration law to try to put those two things in conversation I think makes it maybe especially difficult compared to the idea that, sure, there's been exclusions over the years, but in that exact same moment, you've got this symbol of inclusion and this law that is really the start of the federal level of that kind of exclusion. I think that's one factor. But I also think another factor is something I talk about in that book as well, which is that even those folks, a lot of the time, who are entirely in favor of American kind of diversity, multicultural, multi-everything diversity, see it as more of a 20th century phenomenon, you know, like post-1965 Immigration Act, later in the 20th century, when it comes to groups like Asian Americans, for example, see that as a late 20th, early 21st century growth of those communities anyway. And, and until and unless we remember the 18th century, the 19th century foundations of Asian American communities, for example, it's really hard to remember all these other sides of those histories, like this law, which again, is not simply about Chinese Americans by any means, it's a broader thing as we've been talking about. But if you don't remember that there was this Chinese American community, if you don't remember the, the multi-century history of Asian Americans, it's a lot harder to remember those pieces. So I think there's like national narrative reasons, but I also think there's just big gaps in our collective memory of our diversity. Um, even again, from those folks who would be entirely in favor of it, it's often seen as later even a hundred years later, rather than I think the 19th and even earlier phenomenon that it was. I love that. I love the uh, juxtaposition of the Statue of Liberty and this law. And it seems like a great American studies class project. You know, what are these, what are these two things tell us about, about ourselves? Um, all right. Well, one of the other things about the act is that it's reenacted in, in successive years and uh, extended I mean, can we look at the 1924 Johnson-Reed Immigration Act as a further extension of Chinese uh, exclusion? And I mean, I think I know the answer to that, but I'd love to hear you explain, you know, Johnson-Reed and, and tell us how that effectively continued almost, in, well, into the 1960s, the exclusion of Chinese Americans. Yeah, an argument that I made a little bit in that book, but again, I've, I've deepened in my own thinking a lot in the decades since, is how much those late 19th century exclusions become the model for the whole first few decades of the 20th century, um, for sure. And I would say even, I've made this case elsewhere, the post-Civil War, like neo-Confederate exclusions, the exclusions of African-Americans through Jim Crow and, and lynching and all those, I think those things are parallel too. You've got this big 19th, late 19th century development of exclusionary narratives, exclusionary laws, exclusionary visions of who is and is not part of the U.S. And in the late 19th century, those target, in some ways, particular groups, Chinese Americans, again, certainly African-Americans in various ways. And then I think in the early 20th century, those become influences for broader exclusionary attempts, whether it's like the Sedition Act um, of the 19 teens or the 1917 Immigration Act, which is kind of the first more comprehensive national immigration act and which creates this thing called the Asiatic Barred Zone, which bars Asian arrivals from just about anywhere other than the Philippines, which again, were a US territory. Um, and then especially into the 1920s in a whole bunch of different ways, but certainly the development of those, those more comprehensive immigration laws, the 21 Emergency Quota Act, and then the 24 Johnson-Reed, as you mentioned. And when you look at like the arguments for the 24 law, I've quoted many different times this uh, speech on the Senate floor from a South Carolina Senator, Ellison Durant Smith, making the case for the 1924 law, the Johnson-Reed Quota Act, where he says explicitly, um, we have the largest 
I'm going to get a paraphrase. And we have the largest quantity in the United States of that pure Anglo-Saxon stock. And it is for the, again, I'm, I'm not getting the exact wording, but it's something like it is for the, the, the support, the protection of that stock, which has characterized us. That's the argument he makes. So it's absolutely this larger narrative still of we need laws like this to protect who we are. And who we are is that Anglo-Saxon stock, is that vision, that white supremacist vision of an American we. And again, I think absolutely the Chinese Exclusion Act and some of those other late 19th century exclusions become models for that broader vision of exclusion, that vision that, you know, after the 24 Quota Act, there are 100 Greek arrivals allowed per year to the U.S. Um, that's the quota for Greece, which is so small as to be an Exclusion Act by another name, right? That's one boat at most, basically. Um, and so it just takes that narrative of exclusion and extends it to even more nationalities and communities who are also seen by those voices, by those forces, as not part of that American we, as needing to be excluded from that we. So I do think they are models for that law. They're models for a lot of the first few decades of the 20th centuries, I think, amplification of those exclusionary visions, which then do become really the law of the land in a lot of different ways until the 60s, for sure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, it's great to get a clear idea of just how that 
perpetuates exclusion. Um, and then there's there's also ways of cross-cutting that further still. I mean, there are people that are admitted because they're wealthy, for example, that can bypass some of these laws. So there's there's another layer of class to the immigration laws. What what all comes to change in 1965? Again, I know what Lyndon Johnson does, but in your own words, how does the 1965 Immigration Act transform things and make and sort of bring us into a, a more modern context? I mean, one thing I would say, I think there are some real starting points during World War II. I think that begins to shift not only um, conversations around Chinese Americans, although it does because the Chinese are allies of the U.S. during World War II, obviously against the Japanese once the U.S. is involved. And so there start to be revisions of the law, for example, to allow Chinese war refugees to come to the U.S. despite the continued presence of the Exclusion Act in that era. So I think World War II in various ways starts to shift some of these narratives, if of course, as, as we've better remembered in recent years, it also continues exclusion toward groups like Jewish refugees, among others. But I think that begins to be a bit of a shift moment. But I do think what's really important about the 60s to me is that immigration is framed as part of that larger great society moment, right? It wouldn't have had to be. There's, um, If you look at like the New Deal moment, as, as much as those policies are developing, they don't shift immigration narratives by any by any means, I don't think. But it was in the 60s more so, right, that the, the 65 Immigration Act is usually seen, and I would agree, as like a third of those great society laws after, you know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Immigration Act of 65, Immigration and Nationality Act. And I think it is a, a, an important piece of that great society moment um, and of imagining the idea, again, of something like equality under the law. You know, to me, the ideal version of it is about diversity and multicultural America, and that's how I would certainly often argue it. But on a practical level, what those laws are really about is equality under the law, right? Is that all Americans constitutionally should ha should have that basic that basic right? The Fourteenth Amendment guarantees it, and these immigration laws were doing the opposite, right? They were explicitly unequal on purpose toward different communities. And yes, those communities are not yet American when they're arriving, although they had people who were here as well. But but broadly, still that idea of equality under the law, right? That everyone arriving should have equality under the law, and everyone already here. I think that's a huge part of what the Great Society is is trying to, to argue and push for. And I think it's really important that immigration gets folded into that. And so it has both of those effects, even though, of course, all these things continue to be contested for the last 50 plus years. But it does contribute to increasing diversification, um, particularly after that long period of exclusion, you know, returning to kind of diversification as a goal. But it also, I think, does help continue to make the case for thinking about equality under the law for all these different American communities. We're fighting for it, you know, battling for it, even though, again, it continues to be contested and, and there's a lot of other layers to it. So I think both those things, the diversity piece, but also just the idea that the great society goal of creating these more equitable and just conditions is extended to immigration as well as to voting and, you know, sitting in a restaurant and all those other layers as well. That nearly one, nearly 100 year history of uh, of immigration from Chinese exclusion to uh, the great society. Do you think if Americans knew that history better, that they might change their mind about immigration, that, you know, there, there wouldn't be as much of a reluctance to, um, you know, let other people in from other parts of the world or there wouldn't be as much xenophobia, perhaps? Um, I. I have to think so because it, it's so instrumental to how I try and why I try to do the work that I do in, in every in every capacity, whether classrooms or writing or everything else, is that if our collective memories are more full and more 
accurate and more nuanced and more, you know, widely shared, that there can be effects. And I would say, obviously, there are going to be, you know, voices of explicit prejudice or hate that are not going to, you know, be swayed by those kind of factors. But but here are two things, for example, that I do think, broadly speaking, would make a difference in our shared kind of collective memories and conversations. Again, leaving aside perhaps the really overtly white supremacist um, hatred, which is its own narrative. One thing that would change, I think, and I make the case for this a lot about the Exclusion Act, is I still think there is this broad narrative in American conversations that illegal immigration is a choice that people make, right? That you either choose to come legally or you choose to come illegally. And if you choose to come illegally, why shouldn't we somewhat frown upon that, right? You're choosing to break a law. You're choosing not to do something legally. And and the narrative goes, it's always been thus, right? My ancestors came here legally. They made the right choices. They followed the rules. The people who don't are doing it differently. The Exclusion Act fundamentally, and that whole century after, fundamentally revises that to remind us that illegal was a category. It was created. It was the first category and the only one for a long time created and, and created to define certain groups as and certain groups not. And I would argue to some degree that has never changed. It just has the, the preferences and the narratives have changed who is and is not defined as legal or illegal. Much more than there are choices that people make, it's about how these narratives and laws get created. And at least that allows us to then debate who do we want to define as preferred, as legal, as possible. You know, it doesn't have to be everybody, but at least it's a debate how we define those categories rather than just seeing it as choices that people are making and have made. I think that's one huge effect of better remembering these histories. Um, and the other one that I think is really, really important, again, is, is just the idea that none of these communities are new because I think some anti-immigration narratives are based on a sense of fear of change, right? That, oh, the country is changing. We're not what we used to be, right? I want my country back. That was the narrative during the Obama years and then make America great again, right? These narratives of we used to be one thing and now we're not. And that's always a, a source of fear for people, right? If things feel like they're radically changing, um, you know, the people around us are changing, the languages around us are changing, the, the face of our culture, however it might be defined. And yet, when you actually examine our history, again, all of these different communities have always been part of us. Um, and we've evolved over time, and they have, and, 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 and so on, but always been here. And that's true, again, of Asian American communities, Hispanic American ones, whoever we might define. And so I think that, too, can be a force for at least forcing us to change the conversation a little. And, and again, to talk in the present about these things uh, without those really overt uh, mythic understandings of things like immigration and choice or of things like who that we has ever been. Um, and, and I think those are significant changes that remembering that century also helps us remember as well. Um, and again, that doesn't mean any one thing about policy in the present, but it means at least that our conversations are starting and proceeding from places of understanding and, and history rather than, again, those myths that I think have a, a lot of purchase on us still. I think that's a great takeaway, and it's the great value of your book is that uh, the history itself can help inform the the foundations of our conversations. Uh, I, one of the things that your your chapter on what the act can teach us about diversity is so good is that you describe this melting pot metaphor that's been it's done the rounds for centuries probably now. I mean, actually, I remember interviewing a German American immigrant uh, back when I was in high school, and he called it a brutal filter instead of a melting pot, which I always thought was a nice, uh, a nice way of uh, of seeing it too. But one of the questions I have is: is does the pace at which immigration happens affect a lot of the debate? You know, like how quick 
or how massive uh, 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 the size of the demographics of, of immigration, does that change the debate? I mean, as you said, you're never going to change the perspective, say, of white supremacists, but a lot of the arguments against immigration tend to circulate around the pace or the extent to which. So how much does that need to factor into our conversations today about immigration? Yeah, I would say two things. I would say, on the one hand, I guess this is another corollary answer to like things we could better remember that would inform our conversations, because I do think at least some of the time when I see concerns expressed about, for example, immigrant communities um, being, you know, sort of strikingly fast or new or large or, you know, seemingly, again, kind of changing communities, those kind of arguments. One thing I would say is that those same arguments get made again and again and again and again about just about every community each sort of generation, right? So Ben Franklin does it about Germans in 1755. He says, they're they're coming too fast to Pennsylvania. There's too many of them. They're going to Germanize us rather than us anglicizing them. They're going to make us all speak German, he says in the 1750s. And then by the revolution, he's realized he was wrong and he apologizes and he's able to, to recognize that that was a, a, a myth that he was buying into or a false vision. So I do think it's important to say that those fears have been there kind of for just about every generation and every immigrant community. And in every case, yeah, the country evolves and communities change, but it's never been a source of, I would argue, anything other than growth and 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 amplification. So I do think that's important to say that some of those fears at least are perpetual and cyclical and yet, you know, sort of never quite bear the fruit that the fears are worried about, I think. So it's worth being clear about that when when we're talking about them in the present. But the other thing I would say is it's a very different question to think about how and in what ways we we have policies and processes for those who are arriving, right? And that, at least, I think, is a radically different debate from exclusion um, or even the illegal and legal debate, which, as I said, I think is so based on myths and false premises. I think it's very different to say we need to just think actively about what are our policies and our, our processes at our, at our borders for new arrivals, um, and, 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 and that conversation can then lead, hopefully, to both practical ones and humane ones that can genuinely think about, you know, how do we deal when there are, for example, larger and larger groups fleeing certain conditions or of refugees or asylum seekers? How do we figure out a process and, and a policy that is, again, pragmatic and possible as well as humane? Um, I think that's a very different conversation. The problem is so much of the time it slips into those other myths, right? It slips into those other narratives of, of threats or radical changes that are dangerous or the like, rather than, again, I mean, there's a history for that process conversation and we can separate it maybe from the illegal legal thing and say, you know, when Ellis Island created, there was a process there. It wasn't a law. The people who came were not in any way illegal or legal. They just came, but there was a process for how they came and how they went through the experience. So we can build on those and try to keep thinking about how those work. But again, separating them as fully as we can from the myths and the prejudices and even the basic ideas like illegal, again, in scare quotes, that so often seem to kind of dominate the way we talk about those things. Absolutely. I think that's your one of the things that your book reiterates through the chapters is this designation of illegal. I think a lot of what uh, I'm thinking of here is, you know, how do you house 100, well, in this case, in the Ukraine, say in Europe, it's what, uh, 5 million refugees, you know, from one day to the next. Um, there's there's crises that that raises that are just, you know, so difficult to to, to comprehend. The other thing that your book uh, does really well is it focuses on some personalities. So you mentioned Young Wing, 
for example, Chinese-born American you, you, you mentioned uh, earlier on. Are there recent examples that you think showcase the contradictions in American immigration laws? Because I always think of uh, some individual characters, you know, Elian Gonzalez in 2000 is a complicated case. Uh, I mentioned the Ukrainian refugee crisis. There's Syria and the, and the dimensions between Syria 2010 and onwards that raise a number of hypocrisies. Um, do any contemporary stories spring to mind after you published the book or recently? Yeah, one community or or I guess pair of communities who I've thought a lot about, particularly um, in a, a chapter in a different book of mine, um, History and Hope in American Literature, I wrote a chapter about um, African refugees to the U.S., um, and I was focused there on particular books, like What is the What by Dave Eggers, and then a book by one of the Lost Boys of Sudan. Actually, maybe it was the book, The Lost Boys of Sudan. Um, but I think that's an example of just the complexity, but also sometimes the hypocrisies of the way we think about this, that very understandably and rightly, um, we have, I think, broadly speaking, welcomed and supported uh, that group, for example, the Lost Boys of Sudan, those young men fleeing things like child soldier status and, you know, wars and civil wars. And um, and that's an example of a success story in the way that we've welcomed refugees and um, and helped them you know, become part of an American community in the 21st century. Um, and yet at exactly the same time that those stories are unfolding, you've got, for example, the tremendous prejudice that Somali Americans up here near me in Maine have faced for the last couple of decades, a community that really grew out of the same kinds of conditions of, you know, civil war and fleeing kind of these crises and, and, and becoming part of a state like Maine, where there's now a really sizable Somali American population, and yet have been have faced such consistent prejudice and targeting by like governors and you know the legislature and, and different kinds of, of policies and narratives, even though they're very parallel to those lost boys and, and that community and that experience. So I do think consistently we, and it's not just hypocrisy, that's one word, but I would say it's the best and worst of how we think about these communities, right? Um, it's easy at times to see them or fall into those narratives of fear, of prejudice, of change um, in negative ways. But it's also often, I think, easy for us to recognize that these are examples of the best of who we have always been, of the best of who we are. And you, even in the same moment, you'll have communities that are kind of on either side of that of that pivot or that or the, those two ends of the spectrum. Great. It's a great point. I mean, one of the things that I imagine is a point in time in the near future when our rhetoric around immigration changes dramatically. I mean, the world right now is facing lower birth rates in the developed world, certainly, but also in you know many other places. Labor shortages are causing economic paralysis all over the world after the pandemic in most industries. I mean, we need immigration now, don't we? For sure. For sure we do. And and again, I think so much of the the resistance or the opposition is also then, you know, comes down to fears, right? You know, there's prejudices, that's one category, but so much of it also comes down to fears of things that I think are much less founded than those kinds of real fraught realities of, of you know, contexts and needs. And so to me, a lot of what I see as the goal of like public scholarly work is to try to provide frames that can change the narratives of things like fear and prejudice based again on on histories and realities and and you know not just ideals but on on what the facts on the ground have been so consistently i think that can help push back on the fears and the prejudices and then allow for yeah policies and and national conversations that are both practical in all the ways you're mentioning and and meet 
our ideals and meet the visions of things like that statue in New York Harbor. So, you know, to me, the practicality and the ideal should go hand in hand for all the kinds of reasons you're mentioning, among others. And the reason that they're sometimes separated is often based on fears and narratives that are not not grounded, I would say, that are based on those myths and those longstanding kind of myths that we can challenge. Wonder, I wonder how much has been written about immigration and capitalism. I'm just thinking about, you know, that would be a wonderful, but I also wonder how much is immigration a challenge for federalism? Because we've seen states like Florida and Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, sending immigrants to other states. And uh, of course, our history in, in any state is shaped by geography, uh, whether that's the people coming through Ellis Island or Angel Island across the border or through airports. Is there a local and regional story to American immigration policy? For sure, for sure there is. And again, some of the best work that's been happening in the last few years that I'm aware of anyway, there's the book by um, Hidetaka Hirota, which is about the development of state immigration laws in the 19th century, expelling the poor, I think it's called. Um, Anna Law, who's a, a, a constitutional and legal historian in, in New York State, she has a book she's been working on and, and you know, sharing pieces of about the development of like migration laws and the constitution and, and, and how different states are navigating those things. So I think there's a lot of ongoing really good work about like the development of state laws and state policies and then how that continues to echo into how, into how states navigate those, those policies and those, those goals or those systems. But I guess what I come down to, and it's partly just my own kind of like bias of what I'm most focused on in my work, but I would say what all these histories remind us at the end of the day is that immigration is not, cannot be separated from the larger conversations about who we are and about how we define our identity. And I think to me, it's important in the same way that like, I, you know, I think it's really important that we don't have, you know, public education policies that are 180 degrees different in different states because all kids are growing up in America and they're all becoming part of this society. I think there are there are just you know, places and ways in which we have to think on the federal level, on the national level, on the level of who do we want to be? What is our vision of, again, whether it's like education for our kids or that American we who is and is not part of it? And I think States have to navigate a lot of specifics geographically and historically and so on. But the biggest frames, I think, do come back around to answering those questions in our conversations, trying to answer them, and then thinking about how do our policies and our programs and our goals line up with how we want to answer the questions of who we want to be, again, who we want our kids to be, who we want our communities to be. I think those those questions transcend the states to me. Yeah, and I think it's a question as well about how we codify that idea of who we are. If we codify it in law, like, a you know, whether it's a constitution or whether it's legislation, then we have a, a sort of clear directive and, you know, it might change, but it, it won't change as dramatically as, say, a new politician coming into office that decides that, you know, the, the, the past is bunk and, and everything's got to change. And I, I guess that brings me to one of my last questions, which is, how do you draw a line between the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s and to the rhetoric of, say, Donald Trump? And, you know, you know, a lot of the reason why Donald Trump was elected was the rhetoric of build a wall, or at least that was one of the main talking points of that 2016 campaign. Um, you know, is the, is the line you, you mentioned Pat Buchanan in your book is the line through the likes of Pat Buchanan and there are other politicians that you see that are sort of connective tissue between the 1880s and the 2020s? For sure. Um, and again, you know, somebody like uh, the Senator Smith, who I mentioned in the 1920s and the way that he made the case for that immigration law, 
I would look at at the way that President Woodrow Wilson makes the case for the Espionage and Sedition Acts when he explicitly says, you know, there are those we have welcomed to our country from other countries who are pouring the poison of disloyalty into our veins and need to be stopped. Um, I would I would you know put in those who made the case for Japanese incarceration during World War II and the way that they made that not just about the war, but about a vision of Japanese Americans as not part of the we. Right. There's again and again these arguments that they are Japanese. They are not American, that, that they are not part of that we. So I think there are multiple moments and multiple debates that are through lines, again, within that broader frame. Um, and and so to me, and you mentioned it as one of the things at the start, as much as build the wall was a hugely emblematic part of that over the Trump administration, I would say the Muslim ban was at least as big, if not bigger, because it was the first policy that they pursued, right? They started to draft that even before the inauguration in 2017, uh, rolled it out like two days after the inauguration. It was the first Trump administration policy, as I understand it, certainly one of them. Um, and again, is partly about who is, is welcome, right? It's partly about who can and can't come but is so fully about communities that were already here, right? Um, and and by design, because at the same time, you had Trump administration officials arguing for internment camps for Muslim Americans. That happened in December 2016. Even before the inauguration, there was a guy on one of the shows who was an incoming administration member arguing for that possibility anyway. So I think that policy, for example, which is so much about both who isn't part of the we arriving and American communities who are being defined as outside of the we, um, I think is very much a through line between whether it's, again, exclusionary immigration laws or Japanese incarceration or or many other moments as well that build up to those kind of contemporary exclusions. Great stuff. Um, your your last chapter is called So What? So that's what I'm going to that's what I'm going to have to end with here is what's the big takeaway from studying the Chinese Exclusion Act? I mean, obviously, you've taught this too over uh, a number of years. The book is now 10 years old. Uh, 2013, it came out. So a decade after you wrote the book, so what? Good question. Um, and I guess I would say, and, and hopefully uh, we've talked, I think we've touched on these things to some degree um, in this great conversation, which I really appreciate. So I'll try not to just just reiterate things or, or, or repeat things. But I would say three, three so what's, um, again, all of which are relevant. I hope and believe one of which is is again within the context of immigration debates, which, as you mentioned, are have never really gone away, but are certainly very present right when we're recording this with Biden's border visit and some of these renewed questions about policies and so on. Um, and specifically within that context, I would say at the very least, remembering that not only the way a category like illegal in scare quotes is developed, but the way immigration laws develop on the national level at all is through discriminatory categories. And if we don't start there, I don't think we have any ability to talk about those policies in the present that really gets at how they've always worked and, and maybe alternatives to how we might want them to work. So I think that's one so what. I think a second so what, again, is just that radical and important revision in how we see American diversity. What would it mean to remember that you know there were Chinese communities in California before the U.S. arrived there, that this is a longstanding community, like I would say pretty much every American community, in, in the 20th and 21st century have those roots? And how does it then change the way we think about that we, if we remember the presence in America as part of America of all these different communities um, all along, as well as evolving in, into the 20th and 21st centuries? And I think better remembering the Exclusion Act does that. 
But then I guess the third thing that I would circle back to, and it's it's a it's its own chapter in the book, but I think it's part of the so what. And we've mentioned somebody like Young Wing before. Today I'm writing about um, a piece of that, which is the baseball team at the Chinese Educational Mission, the Celestials, as they call themselves. I write a little about them in that book. They're one of the other main stories in my current project, along with Dennis Kearney, who I mentioned before. These are some of the most inspiring, impressive, moving American stories that I know. Young's story, the Chinese educational mission baseball team. Um, somebody like Sui Sinfar, the Chinese American writer I mentioned in that chapter in the book. Um, and these are not, they're not limited to any one community or time period. These are figures and histories and stories that would inspire all of us, would inspire school kids, would inspire interested Americans of any age, are examples of, of, of the best of us. And they can only be better remembered if we better remember context for them, like the Chinese exclusion era that they're so much part of. Um, so besides changing the way we think about particular policies, besides changing these big national narratives, I would argue, it's also just we need that inspiration. We need that collective sense of like, what are some of the best examples of what America has been and can be that we all can celebrate, that we all can commemorate? And there are great examples of that that are part of these histories. Um, and that we need to remember and and we need to remember the, the histories to get at them as well. Ben, that was wonderful. Thanks so much. I just think uh, so many people are going to benefit from coming back to this book and looking at the lessons that we can learn from the Chinese Exclusion Act for today. And I think the tenure, the 10 years between since the book has been published to to now gives us even more scope to think about actually how right you are in the book. I think about a lot of things, but also a, a, a lot more about how context will always matter and how we need to think very carefully about our own today and the decisions we make either as citizens, as voters, as uh, neighbors. Um, it, it's, it's critically important. So I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, for talking about the book again. And uh, who knows, hopefully you'll, you'll see a boost in sales uh, a decade later. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate the chance to to look back. I can't believe it's been 10 years, but as you say, all things to keep thinking about it. I really appreciated the opportunity to do that. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.